Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld and by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. As a way of getting into this topic, um, A, I want you to think about the number of different ritual and cultural traditions you know of that celebrate some sort of a light festival during the darkest time of the year, right? So we are about to pass the winter solstice, the day when we have the least amount of light in the, uh, in, in the sky. And um, either the, everyone's national and religious holidays happen to match up just perfectly around the same week, or there's something deeper and primal about pulling light from darkness that somehow made its way into religious and cultural traditions um, that that en- ended up overlapping with each other in people's consciousness, but really just stemmed from the same human urge. And there are actually hints of that possibility, not a certainty, but a possibility in um, parts of the Talmudic tradition, including parts of the Talmudic tradition. Um, just turn off my notifications, uh, including parts of the rabbinic tradition um, that is, are familiar to you uh, in terms of setting up some of the basics of Hanukkah. So um, m- m- the, most of what we know about Hanukkah from the rabbis are on about a page and a half or two pages of Talmud in around Shabbat 20, 21, 22, right? Masech Shabbat, the track of Shabbat, which mostly deals with the laws of Shabbat, but the Talmud goes off in tangents and it has a section referred to as my Hanukkah, which means what is this thing called Hanukkah? And we're going to begin reading, and some of this will be familiar to you, or at least the impact of these texts will be familiar to you, even if you haven't seen them in um, in their original situation. So the Talmud says, Tanu Rabbanan, which means we have a tradition from the, the era of the Mishnah, but which was not included in the Mishnah. So the, this is the rabbis writing in the 4th or 5th century CE, Reminiscing about a text from the first or second century CE from the era of the Tanaim, who wrote the Mishnah, but not actually included in the Mishnah. It means that there's nothing about Hanukkah in the Mishnah. The core, first core religious text that we have from the rabbis does not mention Hanukkah, but they wrote about it in that era. It just doesn't make its way into the tradition until the Talmud is codified. Mitvat Hanukkah, Ner Ish Uveto. This might come as a surprise. The core mitzvah of Hanukkah is for one person to light a light in his or her house for all eight days, right? So you could get away on Hanukkah with just having a single lamp or a single candle or a single thing of oil with a wick. And no matter what night of Hanukkah it is, according to the rabbis, that's the core obligation of Hanukkah. The Hamahadrin those who really want to be lehader, to bring beauty to the mitzvah, those who want to make it a more special occasion, ner leel echad vechad, each night of Hanukkah, you add, um, for, for every, every, every person in the, in the family gets their own, but still it's only one. If you really want to go to the highest high, but there's no obligation to do that, and I'll put in interesting parentheses, Hanukkah, it's, it's interesting that it's, it's the holiday observance observed by an extremely high percentage of people who consider themselves Jewish, 
even those who don't consider themselves to be rich, religiously Jewish, but but only secularly or culturally Jewish. And yet nearly every person's observance of Hanukkah is at the level of mehadrin men hamadrin, the highest level of the Talmud anticipated. And this is the culture that you know. Beit Shammai says, Yom Rishon Madlik Shmona, on the first day you light eight in your Hanukkah, Mikan ve'elach pochet v'holech, and from there you continue to reduce by one each day. So on the eighth day you have one. Beit Shammai would have had a very different looking um, uh, Hanukkah house than us. Beit Hillel Omrim, and the house of Hillel says, and this is what we do, Yom Rishon Madlik Achat, on the first day you light one, Mikan ve'elach mosif v'holech. And from that point forward, you continue to add one, right? So at the end of the section, you have the basic norm by which most Jews who observe Hanukkah anywhere in the world observe it. Every person, whatever Hanukkah you have, each day of Hanukkah, the light gets stronger and stronger. Now, built into the explanation for this, we have a window into um, a source for the length of the days of Hanukkah that have nothing to do necessarily with the beautiful story we all were taught when we were five years old about the oil lasting more than one day. Okay, so look at the next section. Amar Ula. Ula is a sage from the Amoraic era. So this is the era of the Talmud, a hundred or so years after the Mishnah. Pligi ba tre Amorae b'ma'arava. Two Amoraim, two rabbis from that generation, disagreed with this from the West. What's the West mean? We normally think of the land of Israel being in the East, but if you're in Babylonia, which is where this is being written, the West is Palestine, Israel. So Ula says there were two Eretz Israel rabbis who disagreed. What did they disagree? They disagreed not about whether Beit, Hal- Beit Hillel or Beit Shammai said what they said. That was not in a disagreement. They disagreed as to what was the rationale for their for their proposed ritual. Why Beit Shammai said you start with eight and go to one, and why Beit Hillel says you start from, with one and go to eight. Some of this will be familiar. Rabbi Yossi bar Abi and Rabbi Yossi bar Zvida. These are the two Israeli or Israel, um, land of Israel rabbis who had this disagreement. This is a common um, approach in the Talmud. We have a disagreement between two rabbis. We say one of them says this and one of them says that, but the Talmud doesn't ascribe who, who said which and who said what, just that one of them said each of them. One of them said, you want to know why Beit Shammai did his Hanukkah that way? Because he wanted the lights in the Hanukkah to represent the number of days you have left. Remember as a child, I remember once you hit the fifth night of Hanukkah and you were halfway over and it was depressing because you, you loved the fact that it was a, that you were going to be able to have the Hanukkah lights and the songs and the dreidel and the gifts all eight days. And once you got halfway through, there was a sadness that you were approaching the end. Beit Shammai says that the Hanukkah should represent that, that reality, that we start with a holiday full and it's like a tank getting um, uh, de- decreased in its capacity because the holiday is coming to an end. So the candle should represent the number of days in Hanukkah still yet to come. The Tama de Beit Hillel, according to whichever Amoraic rabbi this was, says, no, well, not no, and the reason for Beit Hillel's wanting us to go from one to eight, keneged hayamim hayotzin, to represent the number of Hanukkah days that already have been, right? And that's why we end with a flourish, because we have, wow, been through eight days of Hanukkah, and our Hanukkah represents that. Most of us would probably um, at least identify with that explanation for Hillel's answer, right? That you're building up a sense of uh, the number of Hanukkah days you have celebrated. But the other Amora said there's an entirely different reason explaining the eight to one and the one to eight. 
Chad Amar Tama Shamai Keneged Pare Hechag, which is in um, in um, yellow because we're going to focus on that. One said, why does Beit Shammai go from uh, eight to one? It has to do with the bulls of the holiday, to which your response is, what? Unless you're reading ahead or looking at the English. Like, 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 like really, like what question mark exclamation point? What bulls? What holiday? How, how is this at all a representation of a Hanukkah going from eight to one? Hold that thought. But Tama did Beit Hillel, and the rationale for Beit Hillel which is a beautiful semi-halachic, semi-kind of cultural concept in Judaism that you're supposed to go up in holiness and not go down. And if your Hanukkah is decreasing in its intensity and its luminescence from eight to one, that would be representation of something going down. Rather, we want to build up the sense of light and beauty and joy in our life. We present all of this mostly to focus on those two yellow words. What is this understanding? that Beit Shammai's Hanukkah has something to do with Pare Hechag. Look at Steinzaltz, Rabbi Adin Steinzaltz of Blessed Memory, who wrote um, a, a, a classic and beautiful elucidation of the Talmud in Hebrew and in English. Look what he says. Did I have it in English here also? No. Sure. Uh, uh, okay, I'll just read. One of them says, the rationale for Beit Shammai's decreasing Hanukkah going from eight to one has to do with the bulls of the holiday. Haparim, the bulls. Shehikrivu, that they sacrificed. Sukkot, on the holiday of Sukkot. To which, again, your response is, what? Aren't we in Hanukkah? What does this even mean? That, that Beit Shammai's for Kakta Hanukkah has to do with the number of bulls that were sacrificed on Sukkot? If we look closely at the um, the way the Torah describes in Parshat Pinchas the sacrifices on Sukkot, Shebeyom Harishon Hayu Makrivin Shlosha Asar Parim, on the first day of Sukkot, they would sacrifice thirteen bulls. Uvechol Yom Hivchitu Par Echad, and every day, and you can look in the twenty ninth chapter by Midbar and see it, they would reduce by one bull. Um, and that's the and that's the explanation. Okay, so maybe that explains explains half of it or a third of it. It's true that on Sukkot the number of sacrificed bulls every day is reduced, but it's not reduced from eight to one. And even more importantly, what is the connection between Sukkot and Hanukkah? The only thing I want to like pin on that is that Sukkot is a holiday, particularly if you add Shmini Atzeret on the end, which is eight days, and Hanukkah is a holiday that lasts eight days, and maybe there's a stronger connection between those two than we thought. Rabbi Schatz? So I have to give uh, credit where credit is due. Rabbi Shapiro actually learned this text earlier last week and shared it with me. He was very excited to share it, and I had never heard this before. And when Rabbi Klickfeld and I were preparing for this class, it, this is exactly what we're talking about, that in the book of Maccabees, we don't have to read it. I mean, you can read it on your own if you want, but I'm going to explain what it says. The... In the book of Maccabees, it actually explains to us that as soon as the people were able to to uh, observe freely, that the first thing they did was they celebrated Sukkot, which is Rabbi Klinkfeld just just mentioned. It's also eight days, so it's possible that because they were celebrating Sukkot, and then we decided to celebrate Hanukkah based on what happened after after the. Uh, um, the experience, I'll just call it, of Hanukkah, 
that maybe that's where we got the eight days, eight days because they decided then to celebrate this Chag of Sukkot. And you'll see in the second um, the second verse on the page where it says uh, Maccabees 10.10, they do all the things that we would expect them to do that we do on Sukkot, but they were doing it. I assume maybe Rabbi Klickfeld, you know, I don't I don't assume that this was during the time of Sukkot, right? But this was just when they were able to celebrate. Is that true? My 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 understanding of the best guest of the history is that once the temple was rededicated and they had yeah. access to the ritual functions that they couldn't have when it was desecrated, right. they went back and did the most recent holiday they had missed. What's the most recent holiday they had missed? Yeah. Seven days of Sukkot plus Shmini Atzeret equals eight. I see Alan's hand up. Alan, uh, please, Vakasha. Can you say something? Um, that, that is exactly the case because they were battling uh, and they were otherwise weren't able to observe Sukkot. They made Hanukkah when they were rededicating the temple. They observed it for the holiday of Sukkot that they couldn't do. Yeah. And also it's, it's the eight days that ties in from another way that I'm reading uh, the Jewish way by Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. And he noted that that Solomon also had dedicated the temple in connection with Sukkot, and that dedication extended eight days, as is understood from 1 Kings 8.66. So if that was their model of what was going on before, it would be consistent with having this model here of the dedication for eight days of Sukkot and tying it into the Chag. Good. Right. And if you remember from from Parshat Shmini, the notion of eight days being a period of time of dedication and the inauguration of the first priestly class, it's very possible that there were reasons for eight associated with Hanukkah um, that 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 a beautiful story of all oil was grafted onto, but may may not have been the core uh, reason for the original number of days. Joanna. Um, I. I'm finding such a like contemporary relevance to this concept to the times that we're living in because I've seen discussions in more traditional communities that like won't get on Zoom on Shabbat about what are we going to do when we can gather again about all of the Torah readings that we've missed and we haven't done yet. So all of a sudden there's like this whole you know, aspect of, you know, broader than, you know, this one specific instance of Sukkot being missed, but what do you do when you can't observe a mitzvah at its proper time? Yeah, uh, and the Torah has some provision for that with respect to Pesach. Pesach Sheni was was uh, described so that if you were impure or away when Pesach happened and biblical Pesach was not a Seder, it was offering the sacrifice, you had an opportunity to do a redo. I remember when I was a rabbi in um, upstate New York for nine years, you know, a a very hardy community, no matter what the weather, we would somehow find a way at least to get a minion to show up to shul. There was one Shabbat where it was a blizzard. It was an utter utter blizzard. I lived in a house behind uh, the synagogue. I kind of put on my snow clothes and my boots and came down to see if anyone showed up. There was one person who showed up, you know, tried to get up the driveway. It was a very steep driveway. In a, in, a, in, a, in a Jeep, got halfway up, couldn't make it, and turned around and went home. So shul didn't happen. I remember discussing that week with the leadership and the ritual committee, well, what did we do this coming Shabbat? Did we just, I don't remember what, what Parsha was. Let's say it was Parsha, you know, Shmot or something in the middle of winter. Does that mean that Congregation Eitzchayim of Monroe just never got Parsha Shmot this year? What you're supposed to do technically, halachically, is that if a community in its entirety misses 
a davening. The next Shabbat, you're supposed to do a double Parsha. You're supposed to read that Parsha and the previous week's Parsha, which is what we did. Because we figured this is a community that likes to come to shul and expects the Torah to be read. We read a full Kriya. And the following Shabbat, we did our own version of a double Parsha, a uh, like it's called Tashlumin. It's the same thing when you miss an Amidah. If you're someone who davens three times a day, and there are all sorts of elaborate halachot about this, if you miss the Amidah of Shacharit, then when you come to Mincha, you're supposed to say the Amidah twice, even if that feels silly. So the notion of these religious, and I, I feel like I should I should be, be giving this back to Rabbi Shaft in a second, but the notion of these religious activists and religious zealots saying the temple is back in our hands, what should we do with it? We should do the very thing that we wanted to do a few months ago, but we're unable to, namely Sukkot. Bashats, do you have more on that? Do you want me to go to the next source? The only, the only thing I was going to say about this, that, um, that in putting Sukkot and Hanukkah next to one another, especially based on the, the part from Masechet Shabbat that we just read about whether we should go up or go down in terms of numbers of, of candles, that when you think about a Sukkah, the schach, by the eighth day of Sukkot, has dried out. It's withered away. And there is something sad about that, but it also, at least to me, signifies that, okay, now we're moving on to the next thing, that, that this home that we've created has done what it needs to do, and now we're, now we're moving on. Whereas with Hanukkah, the way that we practice, according to Hillel, the because we believe that the light should grow, there's there's almost a, a backwards association to Sukkot that we are actually adding that light. And when we leave the holiday, we've sent even more of Hanukkah almost into the world than with Sukkot. We start off really strong and we end withered. Um, and in fact, with Sukkot, we go into the next holiday immediately. And with Hanukkah, there's obviously a break until the next, until the next holiday. And in terms of our theme of bringing light into the darkness, I, I had never thought about this until you, you talked about how on the fifth day it feels sad <laughs> that, that we really, we, we, we allow ourselves to celebrate this holiday looking forward to what we can do with that light after the holiday has come to an end rather than imagining that we that we have all of that energy, that we have all the light at the beginning, and then it dwindles away, which somehow feels beautifully dissonant to Sukkot, but in a way that um, that still makes those two things connected. So you might say that Beit Shammai's argument is a little, more, a little more honest about what it feels like when the days of Hanukkah are getting towards yeah. the end, and it might be more based in the actual history of the circumstances, but as usual, Beit Shammai loses. The reason why we brought all of this up was really just to create a fissure, just to create a crack in the notion that we know for certain why the holiday is the number of days that it is. And through that fissure, through that crack, we're going to push a rather wide train, or rather not us, the Talmud itself. So in a different part of the Talmud altogether, Tractate Avodazara, the tractate that deals with idolatry, is one of the only other places where there's even a, um, an obscure hint towards something having to do with Hanukkah, and it has to do with the discussion of their holidays, idolatrous holidays. So we have a Mishnah in this first chapter, Avodazara, 
These are the names of the holidays of the idolaters. And you see in the word idehen, you might know uh, that word uh, in, in, um, in Latin, Ides, like the Ides of March, same word, right? These are their holidays. And they had names, Kalenda, and it's, it's uh, written out here in Hebrew as Saturnura. Most scholars would refer to this um, pagan holiday as Saturnalia. And Kratesis and Yom Gnusia Shemakehem, which is some festival related to their kings. The Yom Haleida and the king's birthday. The Yom Hamita. And when the king died, it's like the, the joke about what, what you, when you say Tachanun. You don't say Tachanun if a rabbi died or if a rabbi was born on that day, which means that there's never, there's never really a good excuse to say Tachanun because there's always, it's always some rabbi's birthday or your site. Did Rabbi, did Ray Rabbi Meir, that's what Rabbi Meir says. The sages say, any death of a, of a pagan king uh, that had some kind of a, a public uh, immolation or burning, that holiday brings along with it the imprimatur of idolatrous, idolatry. If it doesn't come with a public burning, it might be a significant day to them. We don't have to think of it as one of their yuntas. All these significant days in, in, a, in a king's maturation or growing or when he was saved from the sea. Or a day that he was redeemed from prison. So if there's these individual days, then, then your you, you as a Jew, your obligation to not, because what this is in relationship to is, is your, your prohibition from doing any commerce with an idolater in the days leading up to or after the, their yantif, because God forbid you should do commerce with an idolater. They should feel grateful for that commerce. And then they thank their gods for having done business with you. And you have been a partner to idolatry. Okay, that's the context. Now the Gemara, a couple of hundred years later, starts looking at one of these holidays very, very um, in a very focused way. Amar Ravchanan Baraba. Ravchanan Baraba said, Kalenda, one of those that we mentioned above, how they called Kalenda, maybe it has to do with calendar, I'm not sure. Chet Yamim Achart Kufa is eight days after Tkufa. Tkufa is a Hebrew word that means um, a period of time. The best way to think of this here is a solstice. And what this is referring to is the solstice of Tevet or the solstice the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. Saturnalia chetemim lifnei tkufa. And Saturnalia is eight days before it. So the pagans had eight days before the winter solstice, and they had a chag eight days after the winter solstice. Okay. Where did this come from? Tanu Rabbanan. There's now going a, a, a jump back into another Tanitic source. And now we have to get a window into the rabbis' understanding of, 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 of primal history. And the rabbis had no problem thinking of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, whom we're about to meet in the story, as having lived, having been real, having been more than kind of fantastic archetypes, but having had real experiences whose, um, whose remnants still impact us today. Now, remember, uh, Adam Harishon, the first human being, was... Uh, born just a few days after the world was born, according to Jewish tradition, when in the calendar year is the world born? Rosh Hashanah, Hayom Harat Olam, 
Ahayom, 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 Hara Atolam. Today is the birthday of the world. Our tradition sees our people as having been born on Pesach. Our tradition sees the world as having been born on Rosh Hashanah. So the odometer of the world's history turns over Rosh Hashanah. So if the world was born on Rosh Hashanah, then Adam was born on the sixth of Tishrei, as it were, in the fall, in the season of the fall. So the fisha ra'a adam harishon that the, the first person saw yom shemit ma'et v'holech. What happens? Imagine whenever I, uh, I I read this text, I think of Tom Hanks in Castaway uh, tracking the seasons on the on the wall of the cave. So imagine the first human being, and again suspend factual disbelief for the moment and try to get into the um, the, the, the the emotions that we're going to ascribe to this person. He's born. He starts to get a sense of his world. He doesn't know anything about how the world operates, but he's taking track of time. And he's noticing that every day there's a little bit less light than there was because from September 18th to September 20th to September 22nd to September 24th, the sun goes down a little bit earlier and there is that much less amount of light. And uh, no matter where you are in the world, Right? The presence of the sun's light and the presence of the sun's warmth is something that you understand as being significant to living, to thriving. Amar, Adam said, Oily, oh my God, what am I going to do? This is terrible. Shema beshfil shesarachti olam chashuch ba'adi. Maybe it's because of my sin. What sin? Having been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, having to live in a real world as opposed to in a perfected world. Maybe it's not only that I no longer live in the Garden of Eden. I live in a world that is dying. I live in a world that's getting darker and darker. And he's never yet lived through the full cycle, so he doesn't know that it's a cycle. All he notices, and it's getting darker and darker and darker. The chozer tohu v'bohu, very Genesisian. It's going to return to the exact thing it was before God pulled life out of chaos, void and, and nothingness. The Zohi Mita, that's going to be my death. That had been meted out from heaven for my not having followed God's instruction, the Garden of Eden. Ahmad, he got up. For eight days he fasted. Right? And you can imagine that he was getting really, really nervous when the days were getting really, really short. And he fasted for eight days. I love the image primordial man as a way of of petitioning god to save him engages in an act that eventually the jew is going to raise up as though as the way that you show your humility and your penitence before god uva it's added in which is, may or may not be part of the original text he fasts and he davens please god save me kevan shera'at kufat tevet once and here the hebrew kufat tevet is the the rabbinic word for the winter solstice. Once he saw the winter solstice had passed, he said, I think there's a little bit more light here than yesterday. I think December 23rd is slightly brighter than December 22nd. Amar, oh, I get it. This is the way the world works. It ebbs and it flows. It gets darker and shorter. And eventually it's going to turn around and get lighter and longer. He made a yantif. He counted for eight days to make sure the pattern was continuing. And the next year when it happened again, he said, you know what? 
I'm going to have a holiday leading up to the winter solstice, remembering when I was fasting because I wasn't sure if it was going to go okay. That's Kalenda. And, or is that, uh, I forgot which is which. That is... Kalenda, uh, uh, oh, that, that's Saturnalia. And Kalenda... Um, Yamim Tovim, who Kavam Lashem Shemayim, Behem Kavum Lashem Abudat Kochabim. So Adam says, the next year I'm going to have eight days of a holiday leading up, commemorating when I was fasting, asking for God's forgiveness. And then on the eight days after the solstice, I'm going to have an eight day party, a celebration, a bacchanalian feast of joy and of warmth and of light. And this is how the rabbis. Um, mention it without referring to Hanukkah, but there's a wink-wink here, I believe, and most scholars believe. Who kav'am l'shem shemayim? When Adam did it, he established it um, for God's glory, for the glory of the single God who created the universe. The Haim and they, the idolaters, the pagans, the people who don't get it, the people who understand reality very differently than us, Haim kav'um l'shem avodat kuchavim. They established it for idolatrous purposes. Okay, what are the rabbis saying here? What might the rabbis be saying here? First, they're saying that originally the pagan holidays that we, meaning they, in their era were experiencing amongst the non the generation, they didn't begin in it with a pagan source. They began with Adam HaRishon, the first creation. And they began in a response to a darkening world. But secondly, I believe what's going on underneath the surface is they're saying Hanukkah was preordained. Hanukkah is not only at its core the Maccabees and the Hashmonaim and oil and even the and military victory, and it's not even only not by night, not by power, which is what we discussed about this morning. Hanukkah speaks to an earlier primal human urge. Adam Harishon put Hanukkah in motion. The story just filled in the blanks later. From before there was a temple, before there was David, before there was Moses, before there was Jacob, before there was Abraham there were our ancestors recognizing that in the deepest dark of winter's night, we need to light a candle, celebrate the fact that the earth is going to heal itself and get um, warmer and lighter. And even though we know it's the case that our holiday of Hanukkah is based on a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar, it's also the case that our lunar calendar is intercalated to make sure that it keeps matching up with the solar calendar. So it always happens that our festival of lights happens in December. Uh, if we were, if we lived on a, a fully lunar calendar, as the Muslims do, then Hanukkah would occasionally appear in February and occasionally appear in June and occasionally appear in August, and it would lose some of its connection. But something, even though the, the official halachic answer for why our calendar is intercalated to make sure that Pesach always happens during spring, one of the results of that is that our festival of lights, like the pagan festival of lights, like the Christian festival of lights, like the Kwanzaa festival of lights, is taking place during the time of the year when the human soul is most in need of oil that lasts longer. This, I believe, is the rabbis winking at Beit Shammai, saying, Beit Shammai, you might be onto something. Even though we're not going to light our Hanukkiot the way you do, we get that you have reasons to be suspicious, that the reason that our holiday is eight days long has something just to do with that miracle of the oil. There's something earlier that is informing that link. Larry, Diane. So having lived for so many years in the Southern Hemisphere, all of this logic doesn't work. And it's not because of the weather, but because 
it's not the winter solstice. It's a time when things are, the, the days are the longest. And I have to say that celebrating Hanukkah, but also some of the other holidays out of season is, is a very strange thing. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Adam got it wrong because Hanukkah is the oily festival and Sukkot, and Sukkot is the most minhagi festival. <laughs> uh, are you making an oil pun there or is that unintentional? No, I was making an oil pun. <laughs> got it, got it. Because if you weren't, I was going to suggest that you do. Perfect, right? <laughs> um, so, um, Diane, your, your, um, your, kind of con- your conceptual discomfort with doing Hanukkah in, in, in the summer of wherever you are speaks to the rabbi's connection to this text, right? There's something about this holiday that has to be in winter's navel, right? And we're not the only one. Rabbi Schatz? The, when we think about, I'm going to do the text at the bottom in a second so you can scroll all the way to the bottom. The, the part of this that is so interesting to me with the, with the eight days of the fasting and the eight days of celebration is that in that text, when Rabbi Klickfeld mentioned how uh, in Masechet Shabbat, it's like around 21 through 22 of Masechet Shabbat that we talk about the Hanukkah candles, the, the piece, and I wrote about this in Table of Five if you want to read it uh, this week, but the piece that talks about why what we do on Hanukkah says all of these things happened, and then the next year they instituted Hanukkah. And before looking at this piece about Adam and Chava, I wondered, like, wh- why the next year? You just had this ab- amazing thing happen. Why not institute the holiday right then and there? Why not say Hallel and and sing Al Hanisim and all of those things right in that moment when you're feeling it? Why wait an entire year? But there's something nicely connected to this piece about Adam and Chava, how you have to have perspective. You have to go through something to be able to actually say that was a miracle or this was my learning so that I can do um, the Chag in its entirety in that next year. And so seeing this piece juxtaposed to the part of our tradition that we look to to understand why and how we do Hanukkah is a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting mirror one to the other. So we're going to end here talking a little bit about darkness and the light that is brought into the darkness. And because we're going to go into Hanukkah, into Hanukkah, into Havdalah, another H word, we are going to talk a little bit about this phrase, La Yehudim Haita Oravesimcha Vesason Veikar. We see this actually, as you can see on your page, we see this from Megillat Esther, right, that there is this moment where the Jews enjoy the light, the or, and the happiness, the, the gladness, it says here, simcha v'sason ve'ikar, because they are able to be who they want to be, go out into the world and celebrate the religion that feels comfortable to them, that is theirs to celebrate, that they have freedom of religion, they have freedom of expression, and that comes with a sense of light. And when we do Havdalah, we use this phrase to remind us, not just because it says the word light, but that we need to put that back into the world, that we need to bring that light, that freedom that not everybody has, even today in 2020, back into the world to be able to shed light on the religious freedoms and the freedoms really of expression that we all deserve to have. 
And Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who we've quoted a lot because unfortunately we lost him all too soon, wrote a beautiful sentence that I want to leave us with before I pass it back over to Rabbi Klickfeld if he wants to have the last word. What he writes is, for thou my, for the, for though, for though my faith is not yours and your faith is not mine, if we are each free to light our own flame, together we can banish some of the darkness of the world. So even if Hanukkah did not originate from just a place of Jews wanting to bring light into the world, what Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs is teaching us is that it doesn't matter. And maybe it's even better that all of these different religions have ways of bringing light into the darkness. Because if we each bring that light into the darkness, then we have a brighter world and a world that is full of many people wanting to see that darkness go away. I wish you could to light our Hanukkah and celebrate our Jewish identity and our, and our Jewish way of serving God and serving the world. And we should also look for opportunities in the present day and hints in the past where the sages who bequeathed this beautiful particulars tradition to us also were looking for ways to connect even back then to universalist themes and to connect with all people who are trying to find light in the middle of darkness. We can do both simultaneously. We can reject the extremists who say that we have to jettison all things that keep us away from one another and um, simply merge into one uh, undifferentiated melting pot. And we could reject those extremists who say we want nothing to do with people who are not like us. Okay? We can also identify with the human beings out there of all religious and cultural backgrounds who are in the middle of December want to light a light in their homes and light a light in their hearts. And we can do so in our Jewish way and feel connected to the world population at the same time. And that is Pursume Nisa. That is publicizing the miracle of being alive and being able to pull light out of dark. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.